6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Dr. Missler begins his teaching on the book of 1 Kings, chapters 1 and 2. Well, okay, we are in the book of 1 Kings, starting a new book. Not really, it's a continuation of the previous one. I might mention, so, while well, well, it's fresh in my mind, in the Septuagint, they call 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th kingdoms. Sometimes, and because of Jerome, sometimes translated. Some Bibles have 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Kings for 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings. The book is divided because the scrolls are too big to handle. It's not divided by content, particularly. It's, 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 so 1st and 2nd Kings are divided so they're roughly the same size, believe it or not. I was quite intrigued to discover that. And uh, so let's take a look at where we are as we look at the panorama of history from the creation through, the say, the restoration of Israel in recent years. Uh, there's certain, certain periods. And, of course, uh, we're going to explore this particular segment, what I'll call the monarchy, essentially from Saul uh, to the exile, from Babylon captivity. Samuel, of course, set up, he's the, end of, he's the end of the judges, he's the bridge from the judges to the kings, and we have Saul, Saul, David, Solomon, and then after Solomon dies, there'll be a, a civil war, and the, the kingdom splits into two groups, two parts. The southern kingdom, Judah, will survive to the Babylonian exile, but the northern kingdom, Israel, goes from bad to worse and gets wiped out by the Assyrians, and we'll deal with that when we get there. But First uh, Samuel takes us up to the end of Saul. Second Samuel gives us the life of David. One of the useful things to remember, if you can keep it in your mind, think, when you think of Second Samuel, think of David. First Samuel is obviously up to Saul, Samuel and Saul, and then David is is contained in a sense, pretty much, in Second Samuel. But uh, at the end of David's life, the beginning of Solomon, we have First Kings. First and Second Kings will take us all the way through to the Babylonian exile. But the break between First Kings and Second Kings isn't really by some topical breakdown; it's by the size of the scroll. Interestingly enough. And obviously in 1 Kings, the book that we're entering now, we'll talk about Solomon and a good, a good portion of the north and southern kingdom. So, in fact, we'll get to the, 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 one of the break points between 1 and 2 Kings turns out to be between Elijah and Elisha, if you will. So if you think of from Solomon through Elijah, you're sort of, you've got the, the, the boundary conditions of 1 Kings. Later on, uh, we'll go through 1 and 2 Chronicles, which is in a sense a repeat. 1 Chronicles parallels 2 Samuel, and 2 Chronicles parallels uh, 1 and 2 Kings with a particular emphasis on the southern kingdom, on Judah and particularly the priestly functions. So that may be helpful in just giving you a broad perspective. And of course, we're going to deal with the rise and fall of the monarchy. 1 and 2 Samuel went through Samuel, Saul, and David, of course. 1 and 2 Kings, we'll talk about David's 40-year reign. It'll conclude. And then Solomon, then the divided kingdom. There'll be a civil war, and we'll deal with those until finally the, the exiles of both the north and southern kingdom. In First and Second Chronicles, which we will review when we get there, is will it be a recap pretty much of the southern kingdom. So that's a quick rundown. Now we've just finished uh, Second Samuel. We'll talk about David, who was an incredible human being. One of the uh, perhaps personal frustrations of, of, of the pace at which we're going, we could have done well to probably stop and really spend time understanding the person of David. Incredible human being. 
a, a clever general, a very military guy. And uh, at the same time, he's also a poet and what have you. And he, of course, subdued the Philistines, Syrians, Ammonites, Edomites, in other words, to the west, north, east, and south. Uh, he was also quite an administrator. He organized the priesthood into 24 courses, which is important to understand when you get to the book of Revelation. While he's doing all this as really administrator, general, what have you, he found time to write songs. He was a poet. And, of course, the Psalms are exemplify some of his work. Not the only work. There's other work, too. But, of course, then we saw the turning point at his peak, this great sin, which is a demonstration of the honesty in Scripture, which we see all through the Scripture, how it, it doesn't hide the blemishes. Uh, sin of not just adultery, but then murder. And uh, that was not just an incident. It was the culmination of a process of, of prosperous ease and self-indulgence and so on. But the good news is one reason God can speak of David as a man after his own heart because of his remorse and repentance as exemplified by Psalms 51. And that's why in the Scripture he is called a man after God's own heart because God honors and repentance. That's one of our biggest challenges in our personal lives is to be sensitive to and repent of the blemishes that we find them, and there are many. And, of course, then we talk about the years of suffering. No matter how much he, 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 he remorse and contrition, it couldn't obliterate the consequences of incest, fratricide, intrigues, rebellion, and ultimately civil war. One of the penalties also, he was not allowed to build a temple. We're going to deal with that because Solomon is the guy that's credited with building a temple. What we overlook is the fact that David paid all the bills in advance. <laughs> he couldn't build a temple, but he could prepay the expenses. So, uh, and of course, there were troubles in the family. You remember in Second Samuel 12, there was the prophecy by Nathan, the sword will never depart from thine house. And uh, we saw that the first son by Bathsheba died, and then he lost moral authority. With Ammon raped uh, David's daughter Tamar. Absalom then kills Amnon. Absalom goes on to lead a rebellion against David. And counseled by Bathsheba's grandfather, who obviously never forgave David for what he did. And then uh, another incident where Adonijah will seize the kingdom. We'll see that coming up here. And so forth. So, anyway, we're in First Kings, and we'll carry it you know, halfway through this divided kingdom. So, the first eleven chapters will focus on the forty years of King Solomon, his accession to the throne, and how he cleans up the mess, some of the mess of David's dirty linen, if you will. How the temple will be built, and it'll take us to the peak of the glory of the nation Israel throughout all history, and up until the millennium, of course, and then its decrease as Solomon. Tragically, he starts, he starts great, but he blows it later. And boy, finishing well is the challenge for each of us. Finishing, and Solomon's their example. But that leads to a civil war, the divided kingdom, which we'll cover, we'll cover about 80 years from chapters 12 to 22, which uh, where Rehoboam accedes to Solomon's throne when Solomon dies. But uh, Jeroboam rebels, takes off the northern kingdom in a uh, in a splinter group, if you will. And the term Judah, the, not just the tribe of Judah, but the southern kingdom is called Judah, and the northern kingdom collectively is called Israel. One of the things that we're going to emphasize when we get there is to discover that all 12 tribes are involved in both kingdoms because the faithful in the north migrate to the south, independent of what tribe they're from. And likewise, the idol wor- the ones that lean towards idol worship in the south would go where it was politically correct, up north. And that's all described in, in 1 Chronicles 11. We'll get into that when the time comes, and so forth. So, Now, Solomon acceded uh, to his throne, by the way, when he's about 15 years old, according to Josephus. We, we fail to realize how young some of these people are. So Adonijah was tempted to preempt, but was thwarted by Nathan, because he was perceptive enough to realize what was going on here, and he nailed it early. We'll see that happen. And so David, on his deathbed instructs Solomon to clean house of overdue punishments. 
and Joab is going to be nailed, and, and Shimei and some other things. So, so let's just get into it here. First Kings chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Oh, a couple of comments, too, I might just... Uh, uh, chrono- you should know, we're not going to get into it, but uh, chronology is a problem. There are all kinds of chronological problems if you really start getting into the depth of First and Second Kings. Because part, and part of the reason is that there's often co-regency where two kings are not necessarily sequentially overlap, strangely enough. And also, Judah and Israel both use different methods to determine the years of a king's reign. And each nation switched their methods uh, during the period of history in First and Second Kings. So if you're going to get into this, you, end, you can't get into it a little bit. You, if you're going to get into the chronology subtleties, you've you, you got a challenge because it's, it's, it's a su- I must have a, a dozen books just focusing on the chronological problems in the books of, in books of Kings. The, the good news is there's no big deal. It's not as if there's some big issue. It's just that it's, it's, it's tricky to try to reconcile it all. But the major dates, to give you a background here, the kingdom gets divided about 931 B.C., the northern kingdom goes, gets wiped out by the Assyrians in 722 BC, and uh, the southern kingdom called Judah goes into captivity in about 586 BC and uh, comes out 70 years later, essentially, to oversimplify it. Now, something you also should know before we get into this is in, during the days of David, both Egypt and Assyria are very weak. They're not really dominant yet. The, uh, these impotent nations will rise to power during the period of First and Second Kings. Um, and uh, I won't go into that background. We'll deal with that when we get there. But uh, that'll be important to our understanding later on. Anyway, David, for 33 years, had aggressively uh, guided God's people to, uh, to greatness. David, you know, we, we so focus on the glory of Solomon. The truth of the matter is David really uh, forged a very powerful empire in that day. And Solomon would take it to its real peak, dominating that, that region. But see, as David gets older, his sons start disputing over succession. We're going to see some of that unfold here. But let's remember as we do this that God had already revealed that David would be succeeded by Solomon. So that was not an ambiguous thing as far as a biblical view. And uh, so, and David had shared this Revelation that Solomon would succeed with Bathsheba, which is Solomon's mother, and uh, he'd even announced it to the nation. We'll find that out when we get to First Chronicles 22, but uh, uh, to make it, where it makes it quite clear. And uh, Solomon, by the way, was not the oldest son. There are other older brothers who were understandably frustrated by this because they felt they had the right in front of this. And one of David's older sons, Adonijah, will try to take steps to gain the succession. But Bathsheba's a little naive, but Nathan sees what's coming, and he nails it right up front. We'll watch that unfold as we go. And uh, so Nathan insisted that David act, and he did. Here's, he's old, he's stricken, but he, he uh, doesn't hesitate. He does exactly what had to happen. So verse 1, Now King David was old and stricken in years, and they covered him with clothes, but he got no heat. The clothes are talking about are bedclothes, by the way. It's a, a translational issue, sort of. David, you realize, was a warrior. He had many, many years of misfortunes at the hands of Saul and uh, before he came to the throne, and so he reached the age of uh, 70 years, according to 2 Samuel 5. And his own writings, David's own writings, marked out 70 years of, as the nominal end of life. Three score and ten is the number. 
the nominal number. And it's interesting today, if you talk to your insurance agent, it's improved a little, but not a lot. You know, you find estimates from 68 to 72, depending on what some assumptions you go into the actuarial tables with. What might have been the final blow that weakened David was the uh, uh, Absalom's rebellion back in Second Samuel 15 and following, as you recall. Now he's they put covers over him, and he still he still got chills that a virgin would be sought to um, minister to him who was vigorous and free from domestic responsibilities was a practice that was not unusual. So verse 2, Wherefore his servants said unto him, Let there be sought for my lord the king a young virgin, and let her stand before the king, and let her cherish him, and let her lie in thy bosom, that my lord the king may get heat. Now it sounds like this is uh, an immoral thing. Uh, it'll The text will make it clear that, that we're not talking about him taking her in that sense. If I could be a little flippant, probably, this is the, the best answer they had for it instead of electric blanket. But anyway, um, so, so they sought for a fair damsel throughout all the coasts of Israel and found Abishag, a Shunammite, and brought her to the king. And the damsel was very fair and cherished the king and ministered to him, but the king knew her not. In other words, they're, they're trying to make it clear this was not a, a sexual thing. It was like a, a, an intimate nurse that took care of him. But Abishag is very fair. Let me tell you how fair she is. She's the one, I believe, that the Song of Songs by Solomon is all about. And we're going to hear more about her in a little bit. But at this point, I think it's fair to take it face value here that uh, she uh, is there as a, a, you know, a a private nurse. And uh, Josephus and Galen, two writers in the uh, first century, second century, refer to this therapeutic practice, uh, which continued even into the Middle Ages. So it sounds strange to us, and we like to think the worst, but that's really uh, what it's all about, I mean, in terms of what this text says. And so we're not talking about intimate relations here. We're talking about a nurse. I think she is identified by name here because she's going to figure prominently in some episodes that follow. So then we get to verse 5. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared him chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. This sounds like he's obviously got an ego problem, and uh, he's starting to put himself forward publicly, uh, saying, I will be king. That's a key phrase. Adonijah was David's fourth son, First Second Samuel 3, and he might have probably was the oldest of the sons living at that time. He's almost not the oldest. And uh, he probably believed that he had a right to the throne, but he, he's ignoring the theological implications of God having already chosen Solomon, who was the, the first surviving son of Bathsheba. And I want you to be sensitive to that, that Solomon is the first surviving son of Bathsheba because Luke takes his genealogy, not through like Matthew does, through the first of the royal line, i.e. Solomon. Luke takes his genealogy through the second surviving son of Bathsheba, Nathan. Not Nathan the prophet, a son named Nathan. And, and uh, so you need to understand the genealogy in Luke is a different one than Matthew. It's, it's of Mary, not Joseph. And that's a whole other study that I encourage you to get into. But... Uh, so anyway, Adonijah is doing some uh, public relations work here, and is and says, and and uh, verse six, and his father had not displeased him at any time in saying, "Why hast thou done so?" And he also was a very go- a goodly man, and his br- uh, mother bare him after Absalom. Uh, who is his father? David. Sure, get the uh, that's that's, that's <laughs> the point. And but he obviously is very spoiled and undisciplined. And I think this phrase that his father had not displeased him at any time is a funny translation, if you will, the fact that David probably was not, he did not excel as a father. He did many good things, great general, great poet, so but he obviously had problems with his sons. 
He obviously, uh, apparently indulged them because here's a case where uh, it says, Father had not displeased him at any time. That's a way of saying, I think that he's spoiled and undisciplined. That is that Elijah was. So, and he apparently very goodly. I mean, he's a good looking guy uh, and probably more for his appearance than his character, I suspect. But uh, evidently, Elijah expected that his plot would succeed because he's popular and presumably apparently capable, championing uh, uh, what he would consider a worthy cause. And he conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, there's that son of Zariah again. See, it's the son of a gal that Jesse married. So he's not really, he's a, he's not really, you know, uh, related to David except through marriage because of a prior son that Zariah had before she married Jesse. Remember? And it's always interesting. These guys, there's a group of them, three of them, that are always mentioned as the son of Zariah, which is in Hebrew text strange because usually always the man that he's a son of. No, it's the woman because they're making a point that, that, uh, Jesse was like a stepfather, so to speak. And conferred with Joab and uh, Biathar the priest, and they, uh, and they following Adonijah helped him. Joab, uh, again, was David's nephew, um, son of a half-sister. He uh, served David for many years, while he, through the whole issue of Saul and all that, when David was being pursued. Uh, Joab was uh, commander-in-chief of, of David's army, and he proved himself a very shrewd military strategist, valiant, uh, uh, but he was not above cruelty and actual treachery. In certain instances, and uh, his chief military accomplishments were the capturing of Jerusalem and the siege of Rabbah of the Ammonites, and I'll go through his whole history here. But he was very brutal, and we're going to see that come to come home to roost before we're all through. He murdered three important men: Abner, that was Saul's commander in chief. He murdered uh, Amasa, who had slain Joab's brother uh, fairly in battle. And then, uh, when Absalom led a coup against David, Joab executed Absalom contrary to the king's orders. Now, some people would argue that uh, he was proper in disobeying the king and, and getting Absalom to keep the th- keep away the threat to the throne. But in any case, uh, that's going to come home to roost, I think. Because he had needlessly shed the blood of Abner and Amasa, uh, Solomon is going to order Benaiah to put him to death before we're all, all through here. Now, Abiathar is the only priest that escaped the brutal vengeance that Solomon took on the priestly order at Nob, if you recall. And uh, so after fleeing to David, he became the spiritual advisor and friend to our fugitive warrior, David. So up to this point here in, in the text here, he remained true to, the, 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 to King David personally. But he joined the conspiracy of Adonijah, and that's going to cost him. He won't be executed, but he will be get a deserved expulsion from the priesthood before the chapter's over. So, uh, okay, but Zadok the priest. Uh, now, Zadok joined David after Saul was killed in battle, you may recall. He served David very faithfully, also served as a spy during Absalom's rebellion, if you may recall. Zadok the priest, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan the prophet, and Shimei, and Rei, and the mighty men which belonged to David, were not with Adonijah. Adonijah's throwing this big thing, but these guys are cons- marked here as not joining Adonijah. By Adonijah's design, uh, probably, because these are known to be loyal to David. They, they belong to David, we're not with Adonijah. But Adonijah slew sheep and oxen and fat cattle by the stone of Zoheleth, which is by Enrogel, and called all his brethren, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah, the king's servants. This feast that Adonijah throws for his supporters uh, is intended to try to gather others to his cause. And uh, so it calls it a sacrifice, but it really is a big, it's a big uh, public relations thing that he's pulling off here. The zone of uh, Zoheleth, by the way, the serpent stone is the way it's translated in the RSV, 
It's been identified as a steepy, rocky corner that overlooks the plain where the Valley of Hinnom joins. The Valley of Hinnom and the Valley of uh, the Kidron Valley join just to south of Mount Zion is where they believe this is. And Rogel, which is the fountain of the, the treaders or the, the foot of the fountain, if you will, is one of two main springs in the Kedon Valley that supplied water to Jerusalem. There's two major springs. This is where they're having their big party. We're going to see another rebuttal party thrown at Gihon, which is the, the rival spring, so to speak. There's more to it, but that's basically it, I think. And so what, what Dan Nigel do is try to pick all the important people, all the influentials uh, that uh, are not firmly allied with David to try to get him uh, usurp the throne before Solomon gets appointed. Obviously, the actions that Adonijah is doing here have been duplicated by aspiring politicians all through the centuries, in effect. But we get to verse 10. But Nathan the prophet and Beniah uh, and the mighty man and Solomon's brother, he called on. Now, these are obviously guys that are conspicuous by their omission from the guest list, okay? And wherefore Nathan sp- spake unto Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Hast thou not heard that Adonijah the son of Haggith doth reign? And David, our Lord, knoweth it not. In their culture, by the way, if Nathan or David's other supporters had been invited and eaten with Adonijah, they probably would have been bound to protect them. That's a strange cultural thing there. So uh, they would have extended the fellowship of a meal that would put them on the spot. So in a sense... In a sense of speaking, it's almost a blessing they weren't invited because they're free to declare their allegiance. And uh, Menaniah, by the way, was the head of David's police force and uh, had distinguished himself with faithful service in the past. And, of course, uh, Solomon was not invited because he was the legitimate heir to the throne and so forth. So anyway, Nathan gets right into this thing. He first appears uh, in Scripture, you may recall, to announce to David that he must defer building the temple. That was back in uh, 2 Samuel 7. And he later is the guy that reproves David for his sin to Bathsheba. Nathan is always playing a principal role all the way through this thing. He's now going to secure the kingdom for David's son Solomon by exposing Adonijah's manipulations here. And the way he does this is to go to Bathsheba. It's interesting that Nathan's initiatives here are pivotal to the story. Now, Bathsheba obviously still enjoys a favored position to David from the first moment that he saw her to the end of his life. Nathan is going to choose words here that are deliberately designed to shock Bathsheba. He says, uh, Hast thou not heard that Adonijah the son of Haggith doth reign? Really? Uh, And David our Lord knoweth it not. Now therefore come let me, I pray thee, give thee counsel that thou mayest save thine own life and the life of thy son Solomon. This is not just a question of preserving God's intent of Solomon. It has some very practical aspects for Bathsheba herself. Because one of the things Adonijah will do is wipe out rivals. And so Nathan's pointing out that her own life is at risk, and certainly the life of her son Solomon, for sure. So he says to her, Go and get thee in unto the king David, and say unto him, Didst thou not know, my lord, O king, swear unto thy handmaid, saying, Assuredly Solomon thy son shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne? Why then doth Adonijah reign? And behold, while thou talkest there with the king, I also will come in after thee and confirm thy words. In other words, what Nathan's setting up here, Bathsheba has access and influence. So he sends her in first to get David's attention. Remember, he's old and he's failing here. 
So Bathsheba gets his attention and announces it. And while she's still doing that, Nathan will come in and confirm it. Why? Because it, the Old Testament says it will always be confirmed by two or three witnesses. So he'll confirm that this isn't some rumor she's heard. It's it's something that uh, requires attention. And he's not overstating the case. It's his initiative and forthrightness that saves the throne. By the way, David had promised Bathsheba earlier uh, that he would make Solomon king after him. This becomes clear when you get to First Chronicles 22 and so forth. It's obvious from the context here that David had made that promise to her in the past because she's going to recall. She's not making this up. She's rec- helping, you know, having him recall that. If the other, her reminding this has several aspects, it's proper to bring it up. But also, it's very possible David in his old age might start getting forgetful. So she, right up front, reminds him of that pledge that he gave her. And so anyway, Bathsheba went in unto the king, unto the chamber, and the king was very old. And Abishag the Shunammite ministered unto the king. And Bathsheba bowed and did obeisance unto the king. And the king said, What wouldest thou? And she said, And my lord, thou swearest by the Lord thy God unto thine handmaid, saying, Assuredly, Solomon thy son shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne. And now, behold, Adonijah reigneth. And now, my lord the king, thou knowest it not. So uh, she just she basically recounts this. It's pretty clear that David apparently is confined to his bed. That's the, that's the perception we have here. And she certainly treats him like a king by bowing and so forth and all of that. Uh, and of course, he explains, invites her to go ahead and tell her tale. And uh, she goes on and says, and speaking about Niger, he hath slain oxen and fat cattle and sheep in abundance and hath called all the sons of the king and Abiathar the priest and Joab the captain of the host. But Solomon, his servant, hath he not called? And thou, my lord, O king, the eyes of all Israel are upon thee, that thou shouldest tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise it shall come to pass when my lord the king shall sleep with his fathers that I and my son Solomon shall be counted offenders. And lo, while she yet talked with the king, Nathan the prophet also came in. Now what's not obvious until you stand back and watch this whole story, when Nathan comes in, she apparently retreats. That's, that's the etiquette. In other words, now Nathan is the, is the big gun here, Nathan the prophet. He's a, he's a, he's a heavy. And she appropriately, apparently, uh, retreats. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Nussler, teaching through the book of 1 Kings. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.